Thank you again for giving. My name is Brett. Good morning, church. Glad to see everybody, but especially our guests. Glad you're here. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. And those of you who are joining online, thank you. Welcome. Glad to have you. Um, Again, happy anniversary. Uh, Happy birthday. In fact, this is the exact day that we had our first service of worship in 1982, September 12th. Pretty neat. And um, I don't know that there is anybody in the room more thankful than me. There may be some who are equally as thankful. But because I've been here all 39 years of this church's existence, I remember when, when some of you weren't. And uh, what we are now is special. I'm grateful for the compilation of our vision and mission and the modicum of success we have had in reaching our community, the grace of God that, is a, that has accompanied <laughs> the grace of God that has accompanied us the entire time. His mercy has covered all of our mistakes, specifically mine. Whenever you're the leader and you make a mistake, it affects everybody you lead. I'm grateful to God. We shouldn't be here. If it was just up to us, we wouldn't. I remember all the things that didn't go as right as we thought. The 33 different locations in which we met before we found this is a home. And those are just the ones I can remember. I remember us having our first service of worship at 139 C Street Southeast, right across the street from the Thomas Jefferson Library of Congress. And we had 12 people, and that included two kids under the age of four. Uh, Five of us were ministers, um, and the other three or four of us were ministers because some of them were married. Uh, and the other three were workers that didn't have jobs. They had come from different cities in order to participate with us. Um, <laughs> and and we, we tried to make it. I had raised my funds. Uh, there, 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 when we took offerings, there was nothing to take. Um, we, we offered, and I'm, I'm being facetious, we all gave, but there was nothing there. And we reached college kids, so there was equally nothing there. (laughs) I had raised my funds in order to participate in ministry. Um, The church couldn't pay me anything, and I had raised a total of $600 a month. And I was happy, no complaint. Just glad to be able to pay my rent, uh, eat ramen noodles, and um, some broccoli every once in a while. For three years, I existed on that, maybe four. And I got married, and Pastor Mark and Debbie Koch decided that the church would then pay me a salary, and they raised me to about $10,000 a year. thought I was rich. thought I was rich. We then went through some difficulty in that our parent ministry dissolved. We were about 180 people in 19... 89, November. And when your parent ministry, the organization under which you find your home dissolves, it does have ripple effects in the, in the congregations. And we were not immune to that. 
We went from about 180 people down to 75 by May of 1991, at which time Mark Koch, the senior pastor, had a conversation with me that resulted in me being the senior pastor of the church and him resigning. That was a sad day because I love my senior pastor and everybody else did too. But he felt like at some level that it was better for me to lead and that the church would respond. And, and, and they did. Um, in, in May of 1991, we had 75 people. And I told them, I said, I, I can't fill this man's shoes. He's been your pastor for a decade. And everybody at that time was looking at one another every Sunday morning to try to figure out, are you going to be here next week? That's a really bad feeling for a church. It's terrible. We were falling apart, and nobody was happy. And I told the church, I said, I can't fill his shoes. He's been your pastor for a decade. He's my pastor. I said, so, so if you'll give me three months, I'll try to figure out how to create some programs and, and do some classes and, and give you some kind of confidence in my theological base so that we can move forward. I'd never rubbed together a series of sermons more than two weeks. Being a campus pastor is very different than being a pastor. I was, I was caring for college kids, not running the church. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. So I said, give me three months. And so they, they gave me three months, and I, I had successfully grown the church from 75 to 53. <laughs> People voted with their feet, and these 53 were now more disillusioned than the 75 three months earlier because more of their best friends were leaving. And I, I'm sharing this story with you not for you to go, oh, poor Brett, no to let you know how grateful I am that we got here because we shouldn't be here. Those 53, many of them hung in here with me. I couldn't preach. I was reading my sermons. I was reading them. So boring was it that one of my friends that we, we later planted in Orlando helped to plant with... Bethel World Outreach Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Tim Johnson, who was a part of our congregation for a decade. He went, we sent him out to Nashville to help pastor that church, and then they sent him along with us down to Orlando. His wife uh, would come to church, and, and she told me later the conversation she would have on the way home with her husband. He can't preach. <laughs> he reads his sermons, Tim. Don't we need to go someplace else? Tim said, we're staying here. And I was terrible. I was terrible. But they hung in here with me. Daryl Green and his wife hung in here with me. Horace and Wendy Ward, Donald Jones hung in here with me. And I don't know why. Later they would tell me, we thought you had potential. No, we weren't getting fed very well, but, but we thought maybe, maybe if we hang in here long enough, he might grow into something. The puppy feet kind of mentality. And somehow or another, we just didn't quit on one another. We just didn't quit. And I made so many mistakes. So many mistakes. 
And God covered my mistakes. And any good decisions I made, he amplified them. I mean, who thinks it's a good idea to buy a water park? You're sitting in it. This was a water park. And when we bought it, the whole church said, Oh my God in heaven, what is pastor doing? He bought a water park? We need a church property. Why did he buy a water park? And I bought it with the, with the cognizance of all the leaders, but I didn't tell the entire congregation because I was embarrassed. So I didn't have buy-in at all. I can't tell you how many mistakes I made. And the reason I didn't have buy-in is because we had already bought property before where I got buy-in, and then we had to sell it because the property I bought was too small, yet I sold them on this property being our home. I've made so many mistakes. And there aren't enough, there's not enough time this morning nor enough sermon time for the next month to talk to you about all the mistakes I've made. Which makes me even more grateful to know that we got here. And that's all a long way around at the front door. The same when we come to the idea of a Thanksgiving offering. You don't know how grateful I am. You have no idea. And I'm, I'm not rich. I'm a pastor. But when I say thank you to God, it's with more than just words. I stroke checks. Venmo, Zelle, I don't know what you do. Some of y'all don't know what a check is. I get it. I stroke checks. And they are indicative of how grateful I am. You may not have been with us through much of our journey. You're brand new. You come in and you see all this. You think, wow, what a, what a great church. We weren't always this. We were at the mercy of different places that would give us opportunities to meet on Sunday. We would rent from hotels, basements of churches, community centers, elementary schools, junior highs, senior high schools. You name it, we met in it. And though you may, you may be just new and participating in whatever modicum of success this appears to be for you, though you may not have been with us through our entire journey, you do have things for which you are grateful. At least you should be grateful because God has treated you extraordinarily well. Much better than you deserve. So every year we provide an opportunity for you to reflect how grateful you are for the combination of whether it be just you and your family and all the things that you've done for you or adding the recipe of being able to be a part of a family like this, a church family that is multi-ethnic, that is serious about diversity, that is generational in its orientation. A good 15 to 20% of my staff grew up in this church. Some of them were 11, 10. Some of them were born here. And most people who grow up in church, at least this is what Barna tells me, who's a sociological kind of preacher guy who surveys churches and gives you the climate, the temperature of the congregations around the world, especially in America, and that millennials are leaving the church in droves. Okay? Not so much here.
They're staying in crowds. I am grateful that we're able to have a mentality that he's developed in us that is not territorial, that is not trying to figure out, <laughs> I got my spot and I'm going to preach as long as I can and y'all need to get yours. I got mine, you get yours. I'm trying to hand it to him on a silver platter because that's what daddies do for kids. They build an inheritance and give it to them. And I'm not just talking about kids who are named Fuller. Fortunately, I've got three on staff. I'm talking about Miata, who was 11 when she came. She was 11. I said, baby girl, you're mine. You're mine. I'm going to give you an inheritance. You're going to be here for a little bit. You want it? It's yours. So many other kids grew up in this house. I'm grateful that this church has a legacy that's going to go beyond me. By the way, people are coming up to me, and I'm getting to my sermon in a minute. People are coming up to me. It's our anniversary. I've got to give you some history. People are coming up to me. People are coming, people are coming up to me and say, Pastor, are you retired? I was over at, over, over at the nursery picking up some flowers to finish my honeydew list, planting things in the ground because my wife gets happy when I do that. Nothing to do with the garden. This was the landscaping. I have two jobs. And I saw somebody from the church. And it's all, it happens all the time. I can't go out. And, and, and he saw me. I prayed for him. Got in his car. Came out of his car. Came back. Said, Pastor, are you retiring? I said, no. Please hear that. There will never be a time when I'm not ministering in this church. Never. But... There will be a time when I'm not running everything, and that time is now. So the same rhythm you have experienced this year with me, not being in the pulpit as often, is the rhythm you're going to experience for the rest of my life. I'll preach 12 to 15 times here, but my responsibilities are at a different level whereby I've got to care for all of our churches that we planted and the ones that we will plant in D.C. Secondly, how long should I stay? I mean, I, arguably, I'm getting better at what I do, so it doesn't have anything to do with competency. I've taken all the experience that I've gotten over the last 40 years of ministry and brought them into a body that feels 30, though it's 60. And so I can do a whole lot more with less than I've ever been able to do. I still got it. That's not the issue. The issue is, even though I've got it, should I use it? When other people can do this as well as me, not the same, but as well as me, when they can't do what I can do in other places. It would be poor stewardship if I continued to stay in a spot when somebody else can do it well. When I can do some stuff, they can't do well. They can't oversee all these pastors. They can't plant these churches. I can. My responsibilities change now. But I still call this home. Does that make any sense so that when you see me in Home Depot, you don't have to ask me that again? <laughs> My point is, when I come, being in the beginning, coming here to what it, what it looks like today, only God. Yeah, we participated with Him. There's nothing that you... 
Generally, there is nothing that God does in the earth without human beings. But he does it. And whatever has happened here that's good has been because he has done it, not because we have done it. And for that, there were so many obstacles. So many obstacles to our progress. And me being the primary. I come to a Thanksgiving offering saying, God, how much can I give you? How much can I give you? Now, because I've been here all 39, that's how I feel every day. But there are things for which you should be grateful in your own personal life that when we come to a moment like this, you're able to say to God, thank you. How much can I give you to let you know how grateful I am? Do that next week. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. The title of the message is a continuation from last week. We're talking about proper identification. Proper identification. The subtitle is Made by God for Good. Made by God for Good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul, Paul the apostle is writing. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Lord, help us as we study. There are two things in this passage about which I want to talk to you. One, God's design. And two, man's purpose. God's design and man's purpose. This passage is on the heels of the famous verse, which is oft quoted. uh, For we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. For by grace we are saved through faith, not as a result of works, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul is trying to help the church at Ephesus understand what salvation looks like and that there is nothing about them that made God say, oh, you Ephesians are a different version of humanity. You're so wonderful. You're so good. How could I not save you? You're different than the rest. I'm going to grant you the privilege of salvation because you're so wonderful and you do so well. No person gets saved as a result of good works. No person gets saved as a result of of thinking that they're good. Our minds at some point lie to us at at the idea of who we are as human beings because we don't want to think we're that bad. We want to think that there's something good enough in us that would somehow put us in the category of deserving to be saved. None of us want to appear to be Hitler types. We categorize sinful people so that we feel better about ourselves. There are Hitlers. There are serial killers. There are child predators. And then there's me. I'm none of that. So I'm really much more eligible to be seen as favored by God for salvation than those people. Now, none of us would have that come out of our mouth, but we feel it down on the inside because we have this insecurity that says, I need to feel good about myself. But when we do that, it robs God of the glory he should receive for saving us the way he saved us. 
Because if there is anything good on the inside of you that is deserving to be saved because of your goodness or anything you have done that somehow puts you in a different category whereby God says, I can't leave you unsaved because you're so wonderful, then that really takes away from the cross of Christ. Because for what did he die? For what did he die? He died for your sin. All of it. And if it was just you and you consider yourself somebody who is worthy of salvation, you would have to look at the cross. If you believe that you are worthy of receiving salvation, you'd have to look at the cross and say, did it take all that from me? I mean, I mean, beard pulled out? Nails in hands? Crown of thorns. Spear in the side. Nails in the feet. Being called all kind of names. Living a perfect life. It took, it took that from me? I didn't think I was... Are you saying that's what I just... He took my... That's what I deserved? And he took it from... Remember... God made the decision before the foundation of the world, whatever that looks like, but he solidified that decision in humanity after Adam sinned, telling the woman that in childbirth, you're going to have a son whose heel is bruised by the enemy, but he's going to crush the enemy's head. At that time, it was revealed about how God was going to save man, and what did Adam and Eve do to now have God think that the best way to get them right was to send his son to die on their behalf. What kind of sin could Adam have done, could Eve have done, to require the son of God to die? Were they, were they child predators? Were they serial killers? They just ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. And it took that to save them. Listen to me. We have categories that require different kinds of punishment under the sun for different, different wrongdoings. So if you murder somebody, you're going to go to jail. If, if you steal the candy bar, they'll probably just say, pay it back. But before God, the issue is not how severe the, the sin affects mankind. The issue is who you affected in heaven. It's not what you've done, it's who you offended. Are you listening to me? Yes. So disobedience is seen as the same for my God. At whatever level we disobey, the same. Different punishments here, no difference there. Are you listening? Thus, your sin, my sin, cannot be fixed by one good deed or a bunch. Your good deeds can't can't wipe out all of your bad. We would like to think they can. That's why people who do good constantly want to pat themselves on the back because they think, well, okay, Monday through Saturday was real bad, but Sunday, I went to church. And at Thanksgiving, I handed out turkeys to the poor. That wiped out an entire year of Saturday night. They want to feel like, okay, I've atoned for myself. But there's no way that can happen. 
No way. Because your sin can't be fixed by your righteousness. Reason being, the only way you can be righteous is if you've never done anything wrong. Because righteousness demands perfection. So if you've blown it, you're already disqualified from being righteous on your own because you've proven your fallibility. So there's no way you can fix it. You can't fix it on your own. It would be like a person who's caught speeding, going 110 miles an hour. The cop pulls him over and, and, and says, get out of the car. I mean, that's serious. And the guy says, but, but wait, last week, I was driving in a school zone, and I went 20 and a 25. Can you let me off, please? What? How do you equate those two things? That's the way our God looks at when we say, but I did this. I know I messed up there, but everybody messes up. But look at what I did. Our good deeds cannot wipe out our that doesn't mean that God is not merciful. <laughs> Extremely merciful. That's why you're still breathing. He is so kind. He is so wonderful. He is so benevolent. He allows for you to mess up all the time. Listen, if you were God, you would pick out because you'd know everybody who you thought was really bad. You'd know everybody and you'd pick him out and say, if he hurts another person, I'm not going to feed him anymore. He gets no food, no water. Him, I'm just going to use lightning to deal with. You would, you would just, pow, pow, folks would drop like flies all over the earth if you were God. Because you'd have this standard that wouldn't incorporate a whole lot of mercy. And God is so merciful, people accuse him of neglect. If God was so good and so kind, how did he let that happen? Was he sleeping on the job? They accuse him of neglect. Be careful. Because as soon as you begin to accuse him of being neglectful on, on, on something that you consider needed to be judged, please remember. Please remember that that same wonderful God has been neglectful with you. Are you listening to me? Everybody do this with me right now. Breathing is a good option. It's a good thing. It is not something that is entitled. God grants us the privilege of living on his planet, though we have done wrong. My point is this. Paul is trying to say, your good works mean nothing. Your evaluation of yourself as being good means nothing. You've only been saved by his grace not by works, so that you cannot boast. Nobody on the planet can boast. But he does say your good works amount to something, just nothing with respect to salvation. They mean something, but nothing with respect to you getting to heaven. He says, for we are his workmanship, which is not to be confused with your piece of work. Though you might be, as well as me. Because <laughs> we have so many issues, don't we? So many issues. Why is discipleship needed? Because all of us have issues. 
If it were only about salvation, Jesus would say, go into all the world and get people saved. He didn't say that. He told the disciples to go into the world and make disciples, which includes salvation. But then disciples means this, make people into disciplined followers so that when people see people who love me, they won't see them as a piece of work. They'll see the workmanship I'm designing. Are you listening? Here, Paul is saying, you got saved by grace, but now you need to submit to the process of God redesigning you, fashioning you. <laughs> I've talked to church planters, and I've helped with that, and that I came here to help plant this church. I wasn't the primary. I was a helper, but I know what it's like to be a part of a church plant team. Not easy. Not easy, especially in D.C. All I can say is, Bigger the trial, big, bigger the city, bigger the, the pie, bigger the devils. That's all I can say. <clears throat> and he, he, God didn't have much to work with in me. I mean, I, I wasn't mature enough to handle spiritual warfare. I didn't know what I was doing. So, but, but I know what it's, it's a part. I know what it means to be a part of a church plant team. I also know what it's like to try to resuscitate a church. I'll take the difficulties of the church plant team. At least all those people have hope and aren't mad. The people over here that you try to resuscitate are disillusioned, disappointed, angry, fearful, insecure, and manifesting all the above regularly. I'll take that over there rather than this. Knowing that to be the case, I am, I am so amazed that God chooses the reclamation projects the resuscitation projects called you and me. That's all he's got to work with. <laughs> we are houses that have a sign put out in front that say condemned. Don't walk in, something might fall on you. There's, a lot, there's nothing spiritually that can exist in that house that is helpful. The structures that have been built are not supportive to life. Do not go in there, you might get hurt. That's what we were. All God had were resuscitation, resuscitation projects, reclamation projects. And our job is to go from being a piece of work that looks like Adam to made in his image, his workmanship, that looks like him. And this is why he says, for we are his workmanship. We are supposed, listen, when you walk into a place, people ought to see you. As, as Jesus Christ manifests in you, not just you. You are being created in Christ. Two ways I'm going to describe this to you. One is a little less religious, and the other is all Scripture. When people, when people drink substance that is influential... And they're walking in the street. Generally speaking, they don't take their fifth without some covering and just down it. What do they do to hide their stuff? A brown paper bag. Jesus is your brown bag. He's covering you up because what's on the inside of you ought not get out to the rest of the world. Nobody needs to see what's on the inside because you are that. Brett is that messed up. So he's trying to cover you. 
trying to cover you. Secondly, because that analogy doesn't work when it comes to the imbibing of alcohol. It, it, all analogies limp, that one kind of is crippled. When it comes to the idea of being in Christ, he's talking in, in terms of, of, of what is being produced. All of us, when we came into this world, came in through Adam. Every person on the planet was in Adam, in Eve. And Adam and Eve could only produce what they were. And what were they? Sinners. And so every person who has come from them has had their spiritual DNA. All of us can call Adam and Eve our grandparents. But the born-again experience allows us to have new DNA, new daddy. We are no longer just an Adam. When we're born again, we are in Christ. Are you listening? What that gives us the privilege of is having new identity, a transformation of character and mind and thought and deed. We are being his workmanship. We are created in Christ. We are new creations. We don't have to submit to the old anymore. Our thought processes, our tendencies, our insecurities, our fears, everything that was old has now passed away and we are being redesigned by God. The challenge is for us to display that to the world so that they don't see what's on the inside of the brown paper bag. That we are completely covered. I know who Brett isn't. But when Jesus is manifest in bread, wow, there's something that happens. And when you spend time with God, when you get in this word, when you begin the transformation process through the, 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 the born again experience and allow the process of discipleship to have its perfect work on the inside of you, you are formed differently. People, people see you coming into work and they can't, they don't know what it is, but they just kind of, why are you... Why are you happy when everybody else is sad? We're scared to, we're scared to death of COVID, literally. People dying. But, but you seem to be confident every day and, and have this joy about you. What is it about you? There ought to be a smell on each one of us when unbelievers come and experience us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, somewhere around 14, for we manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. <laughs> what do you smell like when you're around others? There ought to be something whereby they distinguish you differently than just your Ralph Lauren. You ought to smell something. Smell like something. Do you know the high priest and all the people who would serve in the temple in the Old Testament? They had to go into... The, the place of service, the tabernacle or the temple later. And there was an incense bowl, uh, a place where they would literally burn incense. And this incense had a recipe that could only be used in the sanctuary. Couldn't be used any place. You could not buy this at Nordstrom's. Only in the sanctuary. So that when the priest went in to do his worship and he burned the incense, that incense would waft through his clothes, in his hair in his turban, shoes. And when he came out, he smelled like nobody else in the entire nation. Nobody else in the nation. And everybody knew this. He's been with God. He's been in the presence of Almighty God. Anybody say that about you? Can they just 
Ooh. Ooh, I ain't ever smelled that before. I don't know, what, what, is that, what is that fragrance coming from your life? Glad you asked. Can they tell that you've been in the presence of God? Is the discipleship process, is the forma- formation of Christ in you coming out to such a degree whereby other people can see what you're made for and who made you? The design of God in your life? Can they see it? Is there something different about you? This is what Paul is trying to say. It's not just about salvation. It's about who you are here and how he remakes you in his image. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. This is where the works come in. Works cannot commend us to be righteous. But he makes us righteous as a result of the works he did. Meaning the work of living his life perfectly on the planet allowed him the privilege now to be the only one qualified to take everybody else's punishment who has committed sin because no other person had done that. And now just as Adam was able to transfer all of his spiritual DNA to everybody he birthed, now Jesus was able to transfer all of his spiritual DNA to everybody he birthed. And so now we can have righteousness, not as a result of doing, but as a result of new being. Be the new... Are you listening? Because this is some good stuff. I may not be presenting it very well, but it's good stuff. You get this on the... It's transferred by belief, by faith. You become brand new. Now, as a result of being brand new, you have to do brand new. This is where your works come in. Your works are those that prove what God has done on the inside rather than trying to qualify you to get to glory. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we do what we do to glorify him, to advance his cause, and to be a good witness of who he is on the planet. This is how life ought to be done. That's what our lives ought to say to everybody. So I need you to do good works. But only with the realization that they have nothing to do with your salvation. But everything to do with your witness. Good works must be done. Jesus said you would know them by their fruits. And these fruits are the good works of your life. And the great thing about God is that he gives you training wheels. Good works prepared beforehand that we can walk in. (laughs) I mean, we couldn't even figure it out on our own. He said, let me help you. I'm going to prepare some works that are right in line with your gifts, your talents, the gifts I give you spiritually, your experience. It's going to be like you were made for this. I don't know. (sighs) The church, you all that I pastor, the thing that God has done here is just a reflection of everything that God has done in my life. And I was able to piece it together somewhere around 50 and think, oh, that's why that happened. My mother and father moved me out to white suburbia in 1966. I was five years old. Thrust me into an all-white environment with kids that had never seen a black kid before in their life. We broke the color barrier in our neighborhood. Our house was egged. Our cars were destroyed. Mama used to take us to school every morning. We came out one morning. Car was undrivable, slit tires, took a sledgehammer to it, tore out the the seats, windows busted, totaled. Beautiful 64 cherry red, cherry orange uh, ragtop Mustang. 
gone. Everybody knew my first name at school, but I never heard it. I got in fights, and every day I'd come home. I don't like it here. Can we, can we move back to the hood? Please. I know it was dangerous there, but this is worse for me. Can we move back to the hood? I didn't, I didn't say it like that, but that's what I was saying. Can we move back to the other house? I said, baby, it'll be all right. Just forgive him. Just forgive him. Love him. That's what mama would tell me. And daddy would say, you're going to be okay. I didn't know that that would translate to this. I had no idea that reconciliation would be deposited on the inside of me so I could take people groups that were disparate and angry at one another and figure out a way to bring the gospel to them so that they could be one and not two. I had no idea. My daddy spoke with a list. He was very... He was very communicative. He was articulate, but he spoke with a lisp. I spoke with a lisp. My mama did not want me to speak with a lisp. So she got me a speech therapist, second grade, for an entire semester, twice a week. I would watch my friends playing on the playground at recess, and I would be in, 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 a, in a classroom with this 50-year-old telling me how I talked wrong and trying to help me with my lisp. And the first row is grateful. <laughs> you get my point? I had no idea that I'd be talking for a living. Are you listening to me? There are so many things I can look at in my past and say, Lord, I didn't, good works, prepared before that I could I couldn't map this out I couldn't and God is so particular that he will do that for you this is the beauty of our God that he can listen to all 8 billion people on the planet cry out without being without letting one distract him from another that's the beauty of our God. I can't do that when my children came to me and I said we're going out to dinner and they would begin to shout which restaurant one at a time, one at a, one at a time, one at, I can't hear you all at the same time, one at a time. God's not like that. He can care for you particularly while he's caring for everybody else at the same time. And he can craft good works for you that you can literally walk. You don't even have to run. And it's kind of like those moving walkways in the airport. You're walking, but you're walking faster. Though your walk isn't any faster. That's what God does with his grace. He puts you in places where now you're walking, but you're moving ahead so much. <laughs> Boy, I'm glad I got on that walkway. I'm faster to my destination than I would have been if I had just stayed on the, on the regular pathway. That's the kind of work he does. And you wake up, and you got a church of 7,000 people, and you're just sitting there thinking, how this how this happen, God? How this happen? That's at Easter. That's how many we have at Easter. Not on a given Sunday. <laughs> In fact, I don't know how many we got now with COVID. I have no clue. I don't know where they are. <laughs> I don't know who they are. They don't come to church anymore. They just show up online. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. 
Do you hear my frustration? Do, do you hear it? It's there. It's very deep. It's very deep. <laughs> I just want you to know how particular is God is because he realizes we don't know what we're doing spiritually. We have no clue. And the only way we can be productive is if he says, let me put you on a moving walkway because you'll never get to your destination fast enough. You're too slow. You're just too slow. That's the grace of him providing works beforehand that we could just walk in them. He's designed you a certain way. He's made you and given you an identity that should be wrapped up in him. Yes, people will know you individually for who you are, but they will define you by your Christianity if you allow his design to be yours. And then as a result, when you begin to walk in the discipleship principles that you find in Scripture and obey him and read your Bible, do what you're supposed to do scripturally, when you do these things, you will find yourself on a moving walkway, getting to where you need to be faster and supplying for people's needs along the way. It will be beautiful. And in 39 years, you'll wake up to this. Oh, you won't be a pastor. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you'll wake up to a greater version of fulfillment than you ever thought possible. I never thought you'd be here. I never thought anybody would want to hear what I have to say as, min, as, as, as there are people who do now. Never. I didn't think I was that good. And I still don't. I think God just blesses my voice to make me sound better to you. <laughs> I really do. I really do. I don't think I'm that good. There are so many others who can preach the pain off the walls. I'm not trying to be the best preacher. My goal is just to be a really good Christian. And as a result of my Christianity that I live, which is imperfectly, I then minister out of the fruit of it as being a good husband, a good father, a good friend, a good pastor, a good com civil uh, community member. I do those things well and represent Jesus. Somehow or another, it makes my voice relevant and strong even when I'm 60. When it should be declining, I'm getting better at what I do. And it doesn't make any sense. Last week, I, in the first service, I preached the best sermon I preached in years. And I think, oh, that was fun, God. That was really good. But it has nothing to do with whether I need a confirmation of, of, of staying in the spot. It has everything to do with saying, okay, you're making me better so that my voice can be heard differently with less work and your effort added to it. And I'm grateful for that. So that maybe at 70, I'll even be better than I am at 60. And thus, I'll be able to reach more people with less effort because the walkway will be moving faster. This is what our God does. Get on it. Let him begin to form you. Let him do the uncomfortable thing. Let Christ be seen in you, smelled in you. When in those environments, when you want to give people a piece of your mind, Give him a piece of your heart. Let Jesus be formed in you like that so that when you want to manifest, you don't. Jesus comes out. Wrap yourself in that paper bag. Father in heaven, bless these folk. Pour out your grace on them. Empower them to live the way they should. 